This is a Federal News Network podcast. The early days of the COVID pandemic were chaotic, you might say. Health and Human Services was as busy as any agency. Among its tasks, ensuring unaccompanied children taken in at U.S. borders were kept in environments safe from the disease. How did the agency do? To find out, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with HHS Assistant Regional Inspector General Sylvie Witten. We actually conducted this audit by making site visits to the one influx care facility and the 10 emergency intake sites that were fully operational at the time of our audit when we were starting. And during these site visits, we conducted a walkthrough of each facility, actually putting our eyes on the different rooms and different setups and things that they had going on in these facilities. And we were observing such things as the overall facility layout, the children's living conditions, services being provided to children, the COVID-19 precautionary measures that were in place, which would include things such as distancing and mask wearing, things that we could physically observe, um, and an overall observation of how the facility was handling COVID-19 and COVID-19 cases. Um, We also had a series of interview questions that we asked of facility officials so that we could gain even a better understanding of certain things, um, including the services provided to children, the COVID-19 policies and procedures that were being used by each facility, um, how COVID-19 testing and reporting was being done, and any challenges that the facilities were facing with respect to COVID-19. And as far as the facilities that we visited, um, the one influx care facility and six of the emergency intake sites were actually in Texas. Um, Three of the emergency intake sites were in California and one emergency intake site was in Michigan. And we made our visits to those sites um, during May and June of 2021. So the COVID-19 protocols was, you you were looking at overall, you know, how uh, children were being cared for, but the COVID-19 protocols were kind of the main focus point? Correct, the main focus of this audit was um, COVID-19 and the protocols and protections that were in place for these children during the pandemic, yes. Well, focused on when we were there and what we could observe and then an overall understanding of how they were actually managing COVID and with respect to taking care of these children. And uh, from your observations, uh, how were they doing in, you know, in, in dealing with an unprecedented crisis? Uh, what, what were some of the observations you all made? So I think one of the main overall observations was um, it was a difficult time, right? Um, things were moving quickly and not all facilities, facilities could have been doing more to protect against COVID-19. And part of that had to do with the the Office of Refugee Resettlement didn't really have a good place, uh, process in place for disseminating the guidance and any updates to those, to the guidance to these facilities. And so unfortunately, some of the emergency intake site officials had some confusion or difficulty knowing what COVID-19 protocols and guidance they needed to implement within their facility. Um, But for the most part, the facility officials were trying to take the necessary precautions against COVID-19 and take care of these kids. They just weren't always fully aware of the recommended precautions that they needed to take. Yeah, So, I mean, we did observe, I mean, we had a number of findings, as you can tell in the report, related to um, some of these recommendations not being implemented or fully implemented. Yeah, and I mean, I imagine, you know, everybody, nobody really knew what was going on in the early days. Um, I imagine, or I'm I'm wondering, is this, do they have any training in the beginning um, when they are onboarded as far as, you know, if 
there is some sort of outbreak, obviously not COVID-19, but, you know, there's still flu outbreaks that happen in Texas and things like that. Is there any protocols that were in place for anything kind of like this? So the protocols that ORR had in place were more geared to their network care providers that are always in place and even some procedures in place for the influx care facility because those get opened and closed as needed. Um, The difficulty was that these emergency intake sites were a new type of facility. They weren't state licensed. um, And so they really were trying to put together guidance um, and recommendations for these facilities for this pandemic, which is, you know, nobody saw COVID coming, right? So um, while they may have had, and I I can't speak to that, um, what protocols they might've had in place for flu and things like that, I'm sure they probably did at their normal um, network care of providers, but this was new and they were, the emergency intake sites were a new type of facility and not all of what was required of their normal facilities, normal care provider facilities, their standard network care um, was being required of the emergency intake sites because some of it, the difference being, um, there's a big difference in not being state licensed and some of the things that they can require. So they were trying to quickly develop protocols and procedures that were going to be required of these emergency intake sites during this pandemic. Yeah, and as part of that, um, with these intake sites, what part of the actual intake process um, were they, uh, well, what part of that were they trying to accommodate for COVID-19 protocols? Most facilities were testing the kids upon intake and trying to, you know, mitigate the spread that way. If they were positive, then they could, you know, manage them a certain way. Um, if they were negative, they still were um, at being asked to quarantine them and, you know, watch them for a few days and then test them again and make sure they're still negative. Um, before putting them into the general population. And so there were recommendations being made for intake and how they should manage these kids and the things that they should do. It's just that they weren't, not all facilities were doing what was recommended. And like I said, some of that came from not having a full understanding of, of the expectation. Sylvie Witten is Assistant Regional Inspector General for the Health and Human Services Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. Find this interview and a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. 
And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That's, that was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney, but, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense, 
And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, I'm not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.